our Employment Law podcast series. My name is Leanne Raven and I'm a senior knowledge lawyer in the employment team. As some listeners may be aware, the 9th to the 15th of October marks Baby Loss Awareness Week, aiming to raise awareness of pregnancy and baby loss in the UK. To mark this important week, in this podcast we're going to talk about fertility and baby loss, why this is a workplace issue and what employers can do to support employees going through these experiences. It's worth mentioning that this podcast is a little different from our usual employment law podcasts. It's not a deep dive into the legal framework, but is more of a one-off thought leadership episode with a discussion of where the law stands, or rather trails behind, modern society and our challenges and dilemmas. We will discuss this through the prism of the personal experience of one of our partners, Suzanne Johnston. Suzanne, welcome. I'm delighted you're able to join us today. Suzanne's a partner in our top-ranked international private wealth team. She's based in Singapore and has a reputation as a leading private wealth lawyer. Just this year, she won a prestigious award for Wealth Management Rising Star Under 40. Suzanne is also a prominent advocate in promoting dialogue in the workplace around issues of fertility and baby loss. Suzanne was a leading force in Stevenson Harwood, launching its own internal policies on fertility treatments and baby loss. Welcome, Suzanne. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And um, thanks for asking me to join and for the awesome intro. Thank you for being here. So we understand some of our listeners may find the topics covered in this podcast upsetting. We will talk about fertility and infertility, baby loss and pregnancy after loss. If this is too close to home, then please feel free to skip parts of the podcast at any time. So Suzanne, I know this is a topic close to your heart and you have very kindly offered to share your experiences with us in the hope of opening up the dialogue and supporting others in the same position and helping employers to understand what they can be doing. So please do share your experiences with us. Thank you. Yes, um, I really wanted to join today um, to talk about my experience with infertility, recurrent loss and pregnancy after loss. Everyone's journey, and I hate the word journey, but for want of a better word, everyone's journey is different. And in no way can I cover the range of circumstances and experiences felt by people in this club the club that we never thought we would join and we never wanted to join. But I hope in sharing my story, it will help those who aren't in this club better understand what employees are going through. And to those of you who are on this journey and in this club, I see you and I know how hard it is. So my story began in early 2015, um, when to our great surprise, I fell pregnant naturally. This was totally unexpected as I was diagnosed with polycystic ovary syndrome and I was told by doctors I would need help to conceive. Sadly, that pregnancy resulted in a missed miscarriage at seven weeks when we discovered there wasn't a heartbeat at a routine scan. I was then admitted to hospital to have what is known as a DNC. At the time, I was a junior associate at another international law firm. I was based in Singapore and far away from home. In the end, my husband told my bosses why I wasn't at work um, and that I had been admitted to hospital because I just couldn't bring myself to send the email. Fast forward a few months and my husband and I began fertility treatment. We met with a doctor who told us after one cycle of treatment that not everyone is meant to be a parent and how he had a patient who had just given up. Needless to say, we promptly switched to another doctor. 
those months of trying to conceive felt like a lifetime. But in hindsight, we would look back years later and realize we were lucky. We managed to conceive again with some assistance, not IVF at this stage, in July 2015, and our daughter arrived prematurely by emergency C-section the following March 2016. You see, the other thing about infertility is it impacts the pregnancy too and can result in higher risk pregnancies and early deliveries. Fortunately, my former firm was sympathetic and they let me work from home two days a week during my pregnancy before that was the norm. It was when we started trying for our second child at the end of 2017 that our journey began in earnest. We saw the same doctor and tried the same treatment, but it didn't work. We did three IUIs. One of them resulted in a pregnancy. And I remember getting the call on my way into the office, being told, it has worked, you're pregnant. Please come in on your way to work for a repeat blood test. I was so happy. I literally skipped that doctor's surgery. I did the blood test, went to the office, sat at my desk. And at 2 p.m. in the afternoon, I got a WhatsApp from my doctor. HCG, that's the hormone that detects pregnancy, has fallen stop. Pregnancy won't proceed stop. Stop all meds, stop. 30 minutes later, I went into a presentation at a large private bank. I was absolutely broken inside, but I didn't feel I could say anything. The loss was early. No one knew at that point I was having fertility treatment. So we soon moved on to IVF. For anyone unfamiliar with IVF, it involves months of monitoring and many doctor's appointments. Those appointments are often last minute, long in duration, and more times than not include bad news. We see IVF is expensive emotionally and financially, and physically, it is exhausting. I remember hiding my injections in the work fridge in a lunch box and popping to the loo to administer them in silent pain, hoping beyond hope that nobody noticed. For those reasons, it's very, very difficult to manage fertility treatment when you are working and expected to be visible in the office, which is why I think so many women have commented that they found infertility easier to manage during COVID. In the end, I told my bosses that I was doing IVF and it did make my life easier. Um, the mental load of, of making excuses as to why I wasn't in the office at 9am each day was taken away and I could better focus on my job and the treatment. So we began IVF in Singapore, but after three further miscarriages from embryo transfers, one involving another operation, we were told that we needed specialist testing on our embryos, which isn't possible in Singapore. And so we had to go to Malaysia to start the process again. By this point, I'd moved to an in-house legal role at a private bank. This was in part driven by my fertility struggles. I found being client-facing increasingly challenging, and I wanted to have more control over my calendar. The role was initially a five-day-a-week role, but I negotiated it, ha, 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 down to four days for less pay. And it's still interesting reflecting on this how when I was in a strong bargaining position for a role, I chose to take a pay cut in favour of fewer days rather than negotiate my salary up as my husband would have done. I thought a lot about this and the hidden cost on infertility on the workforce. Despite being a few weeks into my new job, 
I was honest with my boss about the situation. I had learned that that was the only way to carry on with fertility treatment and a full-time job. He was very supportive and I didn't need to take holiday to travel to Malaysia for my IVF treatment. This was January 2019. So by this point, I had either been pregnant, suffering a pregnancy loss, or trying to get pregnant since 2015. At the same time, I'd been juggling a career in law and raising a toddler far away from family. I was completely out of steam. Following the egg retrieval in Malaysia, I did two further IVF embryo transfers. Um, The first was unsuccessful, but the second in September 2019 resulted in my son, who was born during lockdown May 2020. Premature, like my daughter, and by C-section again. And yes, unfortunately, at a time when none of my family could meet him, but he was here with us. My pregnancy with my son was fraught with anxiety and it was classified as high risk. For that reason, I was put on bed rest for the entire pregnancy. Fortunately, I was allowed to work from home and my clients at the bank, who I often spoke with over Skype or email anyway, didn't realise I wasn't in the office. Um, And then COVID struck and everyone was at home, which made life easier and I could be open about working from home. I want to round off by saying I have described my feelings here, but my husband went through all of this too. Partners also need support from their employers and they are often forgotten because they are not the ones undergoing the treatment. No fertility or loss journey looks the same and we need to make space for everyone, including those in same-sex relationships and who are exploring surrogacy and adoption. We also need to be mindful of those who are freezing their embryos in the hope they will one day start a family or who are planning for solo parenthood or for those who never become parents. It's so important that baby loss and fertility policies are inclusive. Well, thank you so much, Suzanne, for sharing your your personal story. It's um, an incredibly moving and emotional account of the difficulties you went through And I really admire you talking about this and um, with the hope of breaking the taboo and increasing the dialogue. So so thank you. We often talk about fertility treatments, but um, I think it might be helpful to to break it down a little. Um, Are you able to uh, explain kind of what we mean when we use this term fertility treatments? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great question because the term fertility treatment covers a whole range of different types of treatment from sort of monitoring scans um, to assistance to ovulate via injections or medicine. It can mean extra tests um, and operations. For example, during my fertility journey, I had four operations under general anesthetic. And for someone who had never had an operation in her life, um, this was a real change of pace. Um, It can also mean IUI, which is intrauterine insemination. Um, And again, that process involves monitoring injections and a procedure in hospital. Last but not least, and the thing that most people think about when they hear the words fertility treatment, it can mean IVF, which is in vitro fertilization. IVF itself encompasses at least one egg retrieval. Again, that's done under general anesthetic. And then that is followed by either fresh or frozen embryo transfers. The egg retrieval itself can take weeks to recover from. 
and injections are required on a daily basis. And, and sometimes they do have to be administered by a professional at the fertility clinic. And you're also usually put on a wide variety of medication. Um, for example, I was on all sorts of weird and wonderful things in the end, one of which was something called intralipids, um, where I was basically hooked up to a drip for three hours every every four weeks. Wow, <laughs> that sounds uh, very, very intense. So I think for anyone undergoing fertility treatment, it sounds like it's fair to say that is likely to have a, a big impact on their ability to perform their job as usual, whether that's from a practical perspective of the, all the appointments or the mental health impact, or the stress or anxiety with the processes, or even the financial strain it can place on individuals. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And I, I think I, I've touched on that in some of what I've already said. Um, I suppose I would add that I was also a nervous wreck until I finally held my babies in my arms. Um, I had what we term in the fertility world, scanxiety, um, which means throughout both pregnancies, I needed the constant reassurance of scans, sometimes a few times a week. But as soon as the scan was over, I worried I had lost the baby. Um, and I, I wanted to just highlight this because I think people often think that once you get pregnant, that's the end of the story. And for most, it is just the beginning of a new chapter of doctor's appointments and anxiety. Um, and even now that I have my two children, I can still be triggered by events and taken back to those thoughts and feelings I had over those five years and I still grieve the babies that I never met. Thank you Suzanne yeah I think that um yeah it's a really important point that just when when someone's pregnant it doesn't mean that it's all this um just this pregnancy glow and pregnancy yoga and coffees with mums to be I know from my own experiences of high-risk pregnancies it's a constant um, anxiety, medical appointments, juggling that with work. Um, there's a whole lot going on there that sometimes people and employers aren't, aren't aware of. So we're going to come back um, to talk about what support employers can offer. Um, but I think it's worth just briefly talking about the legal framework first in the UK. So from an employment law perspective, um, uh, we'll just quickly run through what rights or protections are given to employees going through fertility treatments. So taking IVF, there is actually no specific statutory time off for IVF treatment. While there is a legal right to pay time off for antenatal appointments, that doesn't extend to time off for IVF treatments before the employee is regarded as pregnant. And similarly, that while there's a right to time off for the partner of a pregnant employee to accompany their pregnant partner to the antenatal um, appointments, again, that there's no statutory right for a partner to accompany their partner to the fertility treatment appointments. So those early stages before pregnancy. There's also no specific discrimination protection for women undergoing IVF treatment or their partners. So it's not a disability for Equality Act purposes. Um, but I would say, I think it's a bit of a watch this space on that. We might see a test case soon in that area. So while there are maternity and pregnancy related protections in the Equality Act, those protections won't extend to the very early stages of IVF before the employee is deemed pregnant. So I think, in essence, the, the basic statutory framework in the UK doesn't provide much protection or support for the early stages of fertility treatment, such as IVF. Um, case law helps a little bit in this, in this regard. So case law has supported the idea that employers should allow employees time off for the later stages of IVF treatment and should not treat them less favourably as a result of the treatment. So some of the main principles are 
sort of from the time when um, the ova are collected until the implantation of fertilized ova. If an employer treats an employee less favorably during that time because of the IVF treatment, then they will have discriminated against the employee because of sex. And um, another form of protection, um, so a woman will be protected against pregnancy and maternity discrimination once the fertilized ova are implanted in the uterus. So whilst the statutory framework doesn't provide much protection to employees in the early stages of IVF, a case law does help a little bit. Yeah, I can see that. And uh, I suppose from my perspective, as ever, the law hasn't really kept a pace with the reality of today's society. Uh, many of us are starting our families later in life for a variety of reasons. Um, for some like me, it's because we simply haven't met the right person in our 20s. And more often than not, this means that some form of fertility treatment is required. And I think as more of us share our experiences openly, I'm hopeful that the legal framework will evolve. Um, for example, uh, Nikki Aiken MP, who attended our Infertility in the City event at Stevenson Harwood in the summer, is planning to ask the government to introduce a right to time off for medical appointments in the early stages of IVF through a private member's bill. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I, I must say, I attended that event and I thought it was absolutely fantastic. What a fantastic panel and um, people really willing to open up and share their experiences. So that, that was fantastic. And I think, um, you know, Nikki Aitken's um, private member's bill, um, hopefully that indicates the direction of travel in this area. Um, it's worth mentioning that the Equality and Human Rights Commission Code also recommends that employers treat requests for time off for IVF treatment sympathetically and that they recommends they may wish to establish procedures for allowing time off for IVF and fertility treatment. And I think that is something we're seeing more of. So more employers introducing um, rights to time off, um, as well as rights to time off in the event of unsuccessful treatment. And in the absence of any kind of employer-led initiatives, employees may end up taking sick leave, annual leave, unpaid leave, which aren't the intended purposes behind those, those rights. So clearly the law doesn't have all the answers. Suzanne, from your experiences and from your involvement in groups such as the Infertility in the City group, what what do you think employers can do to help or what would have helped you? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a few practical things that employers can do um, for employees. Um, The first one I would highlight is have a clear framework or policy in place so that employees know as a minimum what they can expect. Uh, Make sure the policy is inclusive and includes clear signposts to resources and who a person should speak to at the company. Infertility affects everyone. It impacts men and women and non-binary people. Um, and that's one of the great things about our policies at Stevenson Harwood. Um, we, we, they're very inclusive. And we also have a separate policy for fertility, which is fully inclusive. Secondly, as you sort of touched on there, I don't think you should need to take holiday for fertility appointments. Infertility is a disease of the male or female reproductive system, according to the WHO. Um, And you wouldn't be asked to take holiday if you broke your leg and needed medical attention. So why should you need to for fertility? It's not a choice. Thirdly, don't forget partners. They need to attend appointments too. The next one, offer counselling and support. An employee is more likely to be able to cope with working and juggling fertility if they have a good counsellor that they can speak to. Another sort of practical comment, I think 
use of a room for injections, like we have breastfeeding rooms, would have made me feel more secure and the situation less bad. I think it's important to foster an environment where it is okay to talk about these issues and educates the wider staff on, on what not to say. Staff should be mindful of making comments like, when are you going to have a baby? Or do you only have one child? I think flexible working is key. An employee on this journey needs flexibility and they will value it. Remember, this isn't a choice. It is a medical condition. And hopefully they won't be on this journey forever. Consider having a fertility officer who employees know is their first point of contact. And if you can offer financial support, do. Infertility can be very, very expensive and not everyone is entitled to support on the NHS. And finally, remember, compassion goes a long way. Well, thank you. That, that is a whole list of really, really helpful practical things that um, employers can consider and, and ways they can help. I think from a business perspective, it's, it's no secret that the most productive workplaces are usually where employees feel supported and they're able to be themselves. So instead of employees feeling they have to hide what they're going through in their private lives, cover up numerous appointments and commitments, actually an inclusive workplace, which allows dialogue and support around these issues, are likely to encourage loyal employees who want to give their best then back to the company. It's also worth mentioning that employers who offer supportive policies may attract and retain the best talent. So such benefits are in demand and they also kind of serve to show the culture of an organisation. Absolutely, completely agree. Um, And this is something that I very much anticipate that all employers will be expected to have over the next few years. And I do have friends who are a few years younger than me who have asked potential employers what they are doing about this. Do they have a fertility policy in place? Yeah, so definitely becoming something people are more aware of and are talking about more. So Suzanne, we've talked about fertility treatments. Um, we're, we're going to move on to the difficult topic of baby loss. Um, I think before before I start, I, I just want to say that we'll, we'll talk about the legal framework. Um, but as is usually the case with statute, it can sound rather cold or detached for what is an extremely emotive topic. So listeners, please, please bear with us. So starting with the legal framework, all the legal consequences of childbirth, including the right to maternity leave, apply where a child is stillborn after 24 weeks of pregnancy or where a child is born alive at any stage of the pregnancy but, but then dies. In the event of such a loss, the employee's maternity leave will start the day after the birth, if it hadn't already started, And in the event of a stillbirth or a neonatal death, both parents may have the right to two weeks statutory parental bereavement leave and statutory pay, provided they meet um, certain eligibility conditions. But if a baby passes away before 24 weeks of pregnancy, typically known as a miscarriage or or a late fetal loss, shockingly, in my opinion, there is currently no statutory right to any leave as a result of such a loss. So there is a private member's bill, the Miscarriage Leave Bill, which at the time of recording this podcast, it's due at second reading in the House of Commons. And the bill seeks to give three days paid leave for parents who have experienced miscarriage, ectopic pregnancy or molar pregnancy before 24 weeks. Um, This is similar to the right introduced in New Zealand for three days of paid leave in the case of miscarriage. So... I think at the moment, the legislative framework is clearly lacking, um, quite shockingly. And so it seems up to employers to plug the gap to be able to support employees. 
Um, so, Suzanne, what kind of support do you think um, employers should be considering? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. We we are still sadly lacking, but I have to say, I'm I'm heartened to see the topic getting before Parliament. And although the New Zealand policy of three days is is not enough time off for the loss of a baby, um, it does highlight the topic and it is a start. I also should just say that I often equate infertility and pregnancy loss because in my case, um, they are so intertwined. But of course, I recognise you can have one without the other. That said, I think some of the things you can do to support employees in both situations is similar. So again, as already mentioned, clear policies and guidelines are needed so employees know where they stand, but they can't be too prescriptive because no two situations are the same and that's the challenge. Policies must be inclusive. Loss doesn't discern between the person carrying the baby and their partner or surrogate parents. And here, think what not to say is so important. Consider coming up coming up with a list of do's and don'ts of things to say when someone has suffered baby loss. For example, do ask, how are you? Do ask, is there anything I can do? Don't say, at least you can get pregnant or everything happens for a reason. You don't need to solve the situation. You just need to be supportive. And there are some useful resources on Tommy's website for do's and don'ts for employers. So I suggest you check that out. Again, here, counselling is absolutely vital. I wouldn't have got through my losses without my great counsellor. It's okay not to be okay. So employees need to feel validated in their grief. Whether the pregnancy was a few hours old, it was their child. If your employee lives overseas, please check your medical insurance policy. At one of the firms I worked at, miscarriage wasn't covered. So on top of losing my baby, I had a hefty hospital bill. Also, please consider how the loss of an embryo or a failed IVF cycle can stir up similar emotions to a pregnancy loss. Thank you for, for all of those ideas. And I'm very much hoping we see the law develop in this area and we see more protections and rights granted for, for infertility treatment and pregnancy loss. Um, in this podcast, we haven't even been able to touch upon other related areas such as surrogacy or employers offering benefits such as egg freezing. Um, but they also invite important questions and consideration for employers and perhaps a, a conversation for us for another time. But but to finish off with today, um, Suzanne, what would your top tips be to employers who want to do more in this space? I mean, there are so many things I could say here, but I, I've given five. Um, I think the first one is, is listen to employees, listen to those members of staff who have experienced infertility and pregnancy baby loss. I mean, that's actually, you know, one of the wonderful things Stevenson Harwood has done is it's listen to me <laughs> um, and, and they will have practical ideas on what could have been changed in the workplace to help them. Put in place flexible and inclusive policies so employees know where they stand. I keep mentioning this, but I, I just think it's so, so important. Consider bringing in third-party specialists to train and educate staff. It's all very well having a policy, but you need the education around that policy. Um, and there are lots of organisations out there who do this now, including Tommy's and um, Fertility Matters at Work. They're just to name a few. Offer free counselling if you can. And if this isn't possible, 
please make sure employees have paid time off to attend counselling sessions. It is vital on these life-changing journeys. Please remember that nobody experiences infertility or pregnancy or baby loss in the same way, but every experience is valid. Thank you, Suzanne. That's some really helpful top tips at the end there. And thank you for joining us today and being so open with your own personal experiences and your strength and courage. It's all a real inspiration to hear. So thank you. And for helping to shine a light on practical things employers can do to help employees going through these challenges, which is really important. So for everyone listening, please do feel free to get in touch with Suzanne or me or your usual Stevenson Harwood um, employment contact if you have any comments or questions on the matters discussed. So thanks for joining us, Suzanne, and thank you for listening to all of our listeners. Mm -hmm.